Our reading this morning is from Nehemiah 1, which is on page 485 of the Pew Bibles. That's Nehemiah 1 on page 485. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. In the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that survived the exile, and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Then I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and obey his commands, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's house, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people, whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant, and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. I was cupbearer to the king. Good morning, and a warm welcome back to HT at All Saints. It's great to see you here again, and if I haven't had a chance to say it before, Happy New Year to you. Let's pray that God would speak to us from this passage of Nehemiah. Would you join me in prayer? Father God, we do thank you, praise you for the gift of today, and thank you for the scriptures. We ask you, Lord, to bring Nehemiah to life to us. We pray that we would learn from him. We want to be equipped to follow you, Lord. We want to grow in our trust and confidence of you. So take the thoughts and words I prepared and use them for your glory. We pray together in Jesus' name. Amen. The book of Nehemiah, tucked in your Old Testament, <clears throat> is... One of my favorites. I have preached through the book of Nehemiah more often than any other book of the scriptures. This will be the fourth time that I would have preached on it. Let me assure you, if you were here last time around, these are freshly minted talk, not recycled old goods. And yet as I was sitting in my study, beginning to formulate what to say this morning, 
I found myself thinking, I, I'm pretty sure there'll be many people in the congregation for whom this book of Nehemiah is a foreign land. And I want to acknowledge it's not an obvious candidate necessarily for being a favorite. Here's some reasons why you might not yet have looked at it or even know where it is. It's difficult to find in your Old Testament, is it not? It's stuck next to Ezra. And in the Hebrew scriptures, the two books of Ezra and Nehemiah are counted as one book. They just joined at the hip, as it were. Secondly, on the surface of it, the book of Nehemiah is a building project. And who wants to read detailed reports of building projects? Yes, we do. <laughs> well, there's one, another building project going on. If you want to know more about what's going on, don't just look at the crane that you can see at the end of Market Street. Do go online and you can read about it. <clears throat> but then there's the character of Nehemiah himself. And frankly, he's not all that likable, necessarily. Some of his man management techniques are extraordinarily suspect. He pulls the hair out of men that disagree with him. Uh, I'm not sure that's an our safeguarding protocols. But there we are. So then, what is the attraction of Nehemiah? <clears throat> and it's simply this. Nehemiah is someone who sees God do such a mighty work in his lifetime that the reputation of God and the place of God's people is morphed from being what originally at the beginning of a book is down and out with God on the periphery of things to by the end of a book God is at the heart of things and we see what God can do as he gets a grip on a society the transformation of a society. And I think it's this ability of Nehemiah both to grasp what God could do and to persuade other people this is what God could do and to see the transformation which makes the book so compelling. A similar role was, say, played by William Wilberforce in his day. He prevailed totally against the odds. If you'd have lived in Wilberforce's time, you would never have thought that slavery would become a thing of the past. And yet, somehow, God graced this man to see a different future and to bring it into being. And that's why I think I, along with many other church leaders, actually, and many other people in God's house, love this book of Nehemiah. The first time I ever read anything about it was when someone handed me a little paperback book by a guy called Brother Andrew, who's probably best known for his work of Open Doors and a famous book called God's Smuggler. But he wrote a book called Building in a Broken World, which I think there are at least 25 copies for sale on Amazon for one pence. And uh, it's well worth it. It's based on the book of Nehemiah, although uh, he's writing it mostly about God at work in Uganda. And it's quite a dated book from that point of view, but it's very good as far as visionary leadership is concerned. And this man, Nehemiah, is mostly known as a visionary leader. And he definitely gets things done. Uh, here's a kind of spoiler alert. It's all about building a wall. The walls of Jerusalem, rebuilding a wall. And from the 
moment that the building starts to the moment the project ends is 52 days. It was an incredible accomplishment. And many people fall on this book of Nehemiah and plunder it for its management techniques and potential. And the thought going on in people's heads very often is, well, if we can copy what Nehemiah did, and he was successful, if we can learn his techniques, and we copy them and do them, then we will be successful. And you can't altogether trash that as an approach. <clears throat> and there are leadership things to be learned from the life of Nehemiah. But I want to add this warning, and I want to make this morning's talk probably the most important talk of the whole series. Before you can learn from Nehemiah by copying what he did, we need carefully to contemplate and consider what he was when he was alone with God. That's what I want us to take in today. Because you won't make sense, I won't make sense, I won't understand how it is that chapters 2 to the end of a book work until we take to heart chapter 1. And in our day and age, we can't help it, we are fed information and images of public figures that shape our opinion and by and large, it's what we see going on in public, isn't it? Whether it's on television, whether it's uh, in the media, newspapers, whether it's in social media, Twitter feeds and all that kind of thing. It's the public pronouncements and announcements that tend to help me decide about people. But it would be much more interesting if I could spend time with them when they were alone. If I want to learn about the Archbishop of Canterbury, Frankly, it's not his tweets I want to look at. I would rather be with him when he's in private, especially when he's praying. I would like to know what his walk with God is like. And actually, that's a very healthy example because it's exemplary and we would learn a lot for our good. It's what we are and who we are when we stand in front of God and are alone with God that's much more important than what we are on Twitter or in the pulpit, for that matter. And this is where chapter one is going to be so helpful. Well, a little bit of background. <clears throat> Obviously, Nehemiah is someone who takes an interest in what's going on in the world, because the book begins in mid-November 446 BC, and a group of travelers, led by a chap called Hanani, or Hanani, visit the city of Susa, which is in Persia, where it is that Nehemiah is working. And he just asks them a question. How's it going back home? What's life like in Jerusalem? What's up? And they give a situation report, and it's incredibly down in the mouth. Verse 3, they said to me, those who survived the exile are back in the province and are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down. Its gates have been burnt with fire. And frankly, if you didn't know otherwise, you might expect the story would go on like this. And when I heard this, said Nehemiah, I coughed, <clears throat> I thought for a little bit, and I thought, not more problems in international affairs. Thank goodness for a quiet life and the glorious gardens of Babylon around the corner. So I went down to the wine cellar and I picked a wonderful vintage for the king. After all, I was his wine waiter, and I have to be perks with this job. Now we know, of course, we know he didn't do that. 
But we also know that plenty of people did do that. Not exactly, but there were plenty of people who saw and heard exactly the same report. People who lived in Jerusalem every day. They saw the rubble. They saw the heap of, of the stones that had been the walls. And they turned their backs on them. They just thought to themselves, hmm, what's to be done? The projects and the problems are just too big. But in Nehemiah, something different is triggered. And if you make notes in your Bible, if you underline verses and that kind of thing, I would suggest that you highlight verse 4. When I heard these things, I sat down and I wept. And for some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. And even at the distance in time, I say today, thank God for someone who cared. Literally, thank God. Because it's not difficult to harden your heart, is it? It's not difficult to become indifferent. It's not difficult to feel helpless and powerless. But Nehemiah doesn't harden his heart. He doesn't surrender. And nor should we. Changing the prevalent mood of discouragement and hopelessness is difficult. It, it's really difficult. But it's what God has laid on his church. It's what God has laid on his people to be the light of the world, to be the hope of the world. It's what God laid on the heart of Nehemiah. Many years ago now, I was an insurance broker in the city of London. And uh, I went to see my vicar to talk to him about the possibility that maybe God was calling me to be ordained. And what you had to do in those days, not too dissimilar today, was you, after you ticked a number of boxes, you were called to go off for a, a rather intensive retreat for, I think, three days while uh, people were observing you and you were being interviewed, etc., etc. And there I was with a group of would-be uh, vicars. And the first session together, I will never forget. We sang the odd hymn. We did a bit of odd liturgy. And uh, then someone went forward to give a talk. Now, it's slightly unfair of me to say this because no one chooses their name. And it wasn't his fault that he was called Canon Coffin. But... It, it was his fault that he decided to give a talk on why the Church of England will continue to decline and talk with such certainty and passion at the nosedive that the Church of England was in. And frankly, if you weren't depressed by the end of that talk, you should have been. And as he was talking, I was thinking, no! But I didn't say it, or they wouldn't have let me in. <laughs> but there is no part of the gospel message, which is, we're going to live with this. No part at all. And when Nehemiah hears the story of God's people in disgrace and suffering, he doesn't just say, oh, well, that's the way of life. No, verse 4. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept, and for some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. And I want to tell you that between chapter 1 and chapter 2, if you look at the dates that you're told at the beginning of those chapters, it won't mean anything to you, but I've done the research and I can tell you there's four months between chapter 1 and 2. So there's four months of preparation that's going on. 
And that's what we're going to look at now, because this is the essential work that has to happen in you and me if we're going to be effective at building God's kingdom. This is what I would call the interior life of God's closest friends. Here are three things that make all the difference to Nehemiah, and they could do to you and me. The first one is this. The honor of God's name matters to Nehemiah. The honor of God's name matters to Nehemiah. Yes, we read God's people were suffering, but it got to Nehemiah that they were a disgrace. They were bringing disgrace to God's name. They were in disgrace. When you love someone, their name requires to be honored. And it pains you if their name is maligned. And we see that just in current affairs and newspapers. So to give you a couple of examples, one of the things about the Hillsborough Report and the parents of those who died in the Hillsborough tragedy, one of the things they most wanted was an apology for the fact that many of those who died, their names had been maligned. It had been just wrongfully, woefully said of them that they were drunk and they brought disaster on themselves. And the most common thing that the relatives of those who died said was, at last we've got an ap apology. Their names have been cleared. It matters. It mattered to them. Or going further back, there were those who campaigned as long as 100 years after the event for the names of people in World War I who had been shot as deserters or for cowardice to be exonerated. Because we understand now they were suffering from shell shock and post-traumatic stress, and they wanted their names cleared and to be put back on the war memorials or put on the war memorials for the first time. Why? Because it matters, the honor of people's name. And to Nehemiah, it mattered that God's name was being dragged through the dirt. It was unacceptable. And broken down buildings and broken down walls bring disgrace to God's name, don't they? They send out a message, and it's a disastrous message. On the internet, you can find an interview between Nicky Gumbel, who's the vicar of Holy Trinity Church, Brompton, HTB. And he's being interviewed by someone who says, quote, you've talked about your sadness at seeing historic churches turned into carpet warehouses or posh pubs, etc." And Nicky says, exactly. One of our archdeacons said, Quote, an empty church is like the empty palace of a long-forgotten king. And people walk past and say, the king is dead. That's not right, is it? That people should walk past empty churches, decaying churches, and say, the king is dead. It's a disgrace. And it should stir up a passion in your heart. I hope it does. That, I know it does, actually. That this has got to change. This has got to change. We want people to understand the God we worship. That's why it's so important, it's so good that in the center of Cambridge right now, at the end of Market Street, there is a massive great crane over the church building of Holy Trinity Cambridge. 
And when that building is complete, at least in part, one of the reasons it's being done is so that people will walk into the new building, which will be fit for purpose, and they will say, these people must love God because they've spent their good money on this. Sacrifice has gone into this. People must care. Wow. And they won't use the words, the honor of God's name, but that's what's behind it. That's what it's for. Or put it the other way around. One of the things I had to do when I uh, was accepted for ordination was to go and explain to my family, my parents, uh, my grandmothers who are still alive, why I was handing in my notice of the job and going to work for a church. And my, none of my relatives were Christians. Uh, well, my twin brother was, so he understood, but the rest of them just didn't. And one of the most formidable was my aged grandmother. <clears throat> and she felt at liberty to really let rip about how stupid what I was doing was. And one of the more cogent things that she said was this. If the church is as important as you say it is, if being a Christian had any validity, why is it that so many churches are falling down? Why is it they're always begging? And, of course, there's a germ of truth in what she was saying. She'd spotted the disgrace that comes with God's name, and she was buying into it. And I was on the back foot because I didn't have any real answers to that. As another friend said to me, you can always tell a sick church it's got a thermometer outside it. Well, praise the Lord, we have a church on the mend. But it should pain us. It, I'm sure it does pain us when we see the honor of God's name dragged through the mud. Praise the Lord, the situation is changing. But it's not just actually about church, is it? it it's about every area of life where God's name is not honored. In the world of education, in the world of business, in the world of academia or science or parliament, or just in neighborhoods and how life is done. It should pain us when God is not getting the glory. It's enough to make you weep. At least it was for Nehemiah. So let's move to the second point. Nehemiah is convinced that the Lord God he worships is almighty. Look at verse 5. O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God. And you know, once you know that in your heart, that the Lord God is the God of heaven, he is the great and awesome God, then the way you view life changes completely and the potential for what God can do changes completely. Now, in this little prayer, and we're not going to examine it today in great detail, in the future we'll look at how Nehemiah prays, but we can tell because he references Moses that he was familiar, Nehemiah's familiar with the power of God. He would have known all about the plagues, the rivers of blood, the parting of the Red Sea, the gnats, the darkness, the boils, the Passover. He knew something of what God could do. And he references here too, it's so similar to a prayer of Jeremiah's, which begins like this, Sovereign Lord, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. 
That's why at the end of each service, we give the blessing. We say, may the blessing of God who is almighty, because he is almighty. There is nothing that is beyond his power. In the beginning, or near the beginning of Luke's gospel, we read, nothing is impossible with God. And I love it when I rub shoulders with people who have discovered the almighty things that God can do. Because listening to them, my trust in God increases. I see better the potential of what God can do. My faith increases. And this comes as we remind ourselves what I'm doing now. We remind ourselves of God's interaction in history and of God's interaction in his story today. We hear what the almighty God can do. And it's part of what being a small group member is, whether it's risky living or an adult small group. It'll be part of what we do at Alpha over the coming weeks. And when the Alpha course is finished, I'm sure there will be stories of people whose lives have completely changed. Because that's what God does. So we fall on our face before Almighty God and say, Almighty God, there's nothing that's beyond your power. What are you going to do to bring honor to your name? And we're confident that he will. He said, I'll build my church. You know, they don't have a debate in heaven every week. Still interested in building a church? Father, what do you think? Son, what do you think? Holy Spirit, let's have a holiday. No, they said, I will build my church. And the gates of hell will not prevail. And as far as I know, God hasn't said, I've rescinded that order. It's on his heart. It's on his heart. The Lord's Prayer includes the line, your kingdom come, your will be done. They don't have a debate about that in heaven. That's our marching orders. We are told, go and build the kingdom of God. I remember reading the autobiography of a clergyman called David Watson, who was, when he'd completed his training and actually his curacy here in Cambridge, uh, he went off to York and he was sent to a very small church which had no congregation at all. It's called St. Michael's. No, sorry, it's called St. Cuspids. And the second day, the church commissioners who were in charge of the fabric of all churches came round and they said, show us the church. And they said, we're going to close you down because you don't have a congregation. And this is what David Watson wrote. I gave the chairman what probably seemed like a very pious remark from a young clergyman. If anyone comes to this church and preaches the simple gospel of Christ and believes in the power of prayer and trusts in the Holy Spirit, this building will be full in no time. And praise God, that's exactly what happened. Within a few years, they outgrew that little church and moved to St. Michael the Belfry. And rather like Nehemiah, one guy who stood out and could see a different future, under God's hand, it was just something David Watson could see, a better future. And others joined, and it happened. And I love the fact, let me just tell you something, that we're privileged to be in Cambridge at this time. There is a wind of change growing and going through the structures of the Church of England right now and in this diocese right now. And the expectation from the top, from the bishop downwards is, you guys get on with being faithful to God's word, being open to the spirit, ministering in the kingdom of God, and we'll do everything we can to support you and you will see growth. 
And I can't tell you how encouraging that is. Because just a few years ago, when I first got here, I remember asking the then bishop, who was rather an old codger, uh, what, what, what's your ambition? What do you want to be known as? And he said to the church, I want to be known as a safe pair of hands. And I thought, oh boy. <laughs> because I don't see Jesus saying, come to me, all of you are weary, and I'll make you a safe pair of hands. I don't see Jesus commissioning his disciples and saying, go and live a quiet life and be known to be a safe pair of hands. Because building the kingdom of God is not a safe pair of hands. No one, Nehemiah, never had a safe pair of hands. It was unbelievably risky. It was unbelievably dirty. It was very, very inconvenient. It was hugely costly. It, it, it cost them everything they had. But the kingdom came. And right now, the message I'm giving you is completely on message with a message coming from Darcy Zvili, the Archbishop of Canterbury. And my goodness, it needs to be. It's Jesus' message. Build the kingdom. Build the kingdom. Bring honor to God's name. Yes. And rely on the God who's all-powerful. Yes. And then here's my third and final point we can get from Nehemiah in chapter 1. He committed himself fully into the Lord's hands. But actually, that's too comfortable a summary of what he did. So I'm going to give you the unvarnished side. He put himself at the Lord's disposal. In a few weeks' time, we're going to have what we call Commitment Sunday here. And we've been doing this for years now. At the beginning of each year, very intentionally, we have an opportunity. We are urged to conduct a kind of self-audit, an MOT, for each of us to ask ourselves, where am I with God? And I'll be writing to you about it, but it's good that I'm talking to you about it today. There is a, an element, which we'll come on to, of financial giving that comes with that. But more important than that is the element of where are you with God? I can't do the business for you. You can't do it for me. But Nehemiah is exemplifying to us today the business that needs to be done. And what he says here is, Lord, you can do what you like with me because I'm the change in your pocket. How do I get to see that? Well, you look at his prayer, and the word that he favors as the description of himself is the word servant, or the word slave. Verse 6, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear your servant. And he prays in verse 11, that God will answer the prayers of your servants who delight in revering your name. And this is totally consistent totally consistent with God's fruitful children down the ages. Paul, at the beginning of the book of Romans, describes himself a slave of the Lord's. That's the place we have to be in. Back in the day when I did work in the city, I was an insurance broker, and in insurance broking, one of the things you try to do is you try and persuade people called underwriters, that they would insure whatever it is you want, whether it's a satellite going off into space, rather like your car insurance or your home insurance. Someone has to take the money and say, okay, if it breaks, or we'll pay up. 
But just occasionally, you would get some things which were very, very, very difficult to insure. I don't know, it might be a very old boat or something like that. And one of the techniques used to be, if you're in real trouble, you'd send down, they would send down the biggest cheese they could find in the organization. So a big multinational organization. And they'd send down the managing director, the chief executive. And he would stand at the end, of, in front of the desk of a chap that he wanted to do business. He'd look important, and he'd rattle the change in his pocket. He didn't really have to say anything, because what he was really saying is, I'm important. You and me have to be willing, we have to be willing to be the change in God's pocket. He's the big guy. We can't do what he wants to do alone, independent from him. But we can say, Lord, you can spend me in any way you like. I, I'm, I'm at your disposal. I am your small change. And that is what Nehemiah does here in the very beginning of the book, right on his own. You know, if he hadn't written about this, we would never know about it. But it's the secret of his success. It, it's none of the things he'll do in chapter 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7 and following. It begins here. There's really no point in copying the techniques that you see in Nehemiah unless you've done the hard grind here. It's what you and I do in secret before the Lord, saying, Lord, the honor of your name, I get it. Lord, the power that you have of your spirit, I get it. Lord, the right you have to be Lord of my life and the need for me to surrender, I get it. And when those things align, and then you pray as Nehemiah prayed, give your servant success today. I think you can expect a very positive answer. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for the scriptures. We thank you for those who have gone before us and those that we know today who walk in your ways, who are full of faith, who are a healthy role model for us. We thank you for those on whom your favor rests. And we thank you that we belong to such a church. We thank you for all that you're doing at Holy Trinity and through Holy Trinity, which is a blessing and bringing honor to you. And we're glad to be part of it. But Lord, we're not proud. We don't think we've arrived. We thank you for the reminder to get our house in order. And at the beginning of this year, once again, we, we come to you and we surrender afresh. And whether we feel in a good way or a bad way, we just thank you. You can be our Lord and God and Savior this year. We thank you that your power is not diminished this year. Your plans have not changed for this year. Come and speak life to us and do whatever you want is the prayer of your servants here this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.